everyone. Um, since my audience skews um, male by 55% between the ages of 35 and 50, and since I got you assholes hostage, um, and I speculated as to why you fucking need to listen to my podcast, but we're not going to go there tonight. Um, dudes, dudes, one in seven men will get prostate cancer. 26,000 plus men will die of prostate cancer. Get your shit checked. I'm so serious. Take your butt literally to the doctor and get it checked. It. I know it's an indignity. I know, but it's an indignity that will save your life. So don't fuck around with it. Don't be one of those 26,000 men who die of prostate cancer when it is treatable and curable and the mortality rate is great. Don't fuck around with it. Don't be that man who waits too long, it's too aggressive, and it can't be treated. Okay. Second PSA, never ever eat a muffin agitated. So, just what I'm saying. <laughs> so, now that we got those things out of the way, um, just seriously, take care of your junk if you want to keep it. Um, because uh, prostate cancer can lead to impotence if you're not careful. And you don't want that. Anyways, tonight's podcast is about characterization and um, developing a relationship with your character uh, so that when you're moving through your narrative and your story, um, you know what your character is going to do 100% of the time. There can't be any question about what your character will do. Because if you don't know your character well enough to know what they're going to do in any single um, situation, um, then you're not ready to write that character as a main character. I don't think it's important as much um, when it comes to minor characters uh, or characters that are only in one scene or are background characters. But your main character's consistency can or inconsistency can make or break your entire story. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And this was Jilly's topic because uh, she's got to be in her bonnet. And we're going to get started. There is a bee in my bonnet, like a giant bumblebee, <laughs> like a mutant one, like you might find in the Everglades or something. <laughs> if they have bumblebees in the Everglades, I'm not sure. <clears throat> She's got a swamp thing in her bump in her bonnet. <laughs> There's a swamp thing in my bonnet. I gotta remember that. <laughs> now, it, characterization is something. I, uh, is I probably the most important thing to me in a story is characterization. I mean, I would like to say that. I mean, granted, anything, any any of the big elements in a story that go drastically wrong can turn you off. But bad characterization, it almost makes me angry. No, it does make me angry. I mean, if I really like a character... <laughs> almost? I was like, really? Almost? <laughs> yeah, I, I've been having a tantrum. I've been having a tantrum lately, <laughs> behind the scenes. Um, when, you, when you really like a character, 
especially if you find them engaging in a story or and you're really with them on their journey, or in fan fiction, if a character is one you really enjoy, to see them dr- drastically out of character. Um, especially, but especially, especially in the context of a specific story where you're with the character, and you're with, and then they do something that violates their own character, their own internal consistency that the author has established for them. It can be infuriating. I mean, that's why we get so mad at Gibbs, right? Is because they set up him to be one way, and then and then they just ruin him over and over and over again. You know, they they set him up to be, you know, a, a moral beacon, and then he lets murderers walk away because they're buddies. You know, it's just it's infuriating, and it wouldn't then he be so. Right, and it wouldn't make you so angry if it wasn't so inconsistent. Um, if that was his characterization, if that was the way he was, if he was Dr. Doom, you wouldn't care that he's killing people. But that's not who he is, so you do care, and it does make you mad. Um, more than a plot hole, more than more than Aiden Ford somehow managing to fly a jumper off of Atlantis. It, You know, that kind of plot hole is like you roll your eyes and you find it annoying, but it doesn't make you mad the way it would, you know, like if Rodney picked up a gun and killed somebody in cold blood in the gate room. It just, it, you know, that didn't happen. <laughs> but, you know what I mean? I mean, it's just, when somebody violates something about a character. But I have a list of characters that it could have happened to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just saying. It, it almost feels like it's a weird thing, and this is totally a reader-centric point of view, you know, it almost feels like a betrayal. Like, what are you doing? Why did you do that? When a write, when a show writer does that to a character, where they violate their essence of that character, their internal consistency to that kind of a huge degree, it does feel like you've been betrayed in a kind of weird way. I mean, it hurts. It's like, why? Why would you do that? And it's terrible when it's for a plot device to make some other thing happen that could have happened in another way. It just, and then you get mad because it's lazy writing, and you know, it's just. I have, um, I have giant tantrums over characterization in ways I don't have about anything else. I just, I get so emotional, wrapped up. So, Kira, you know, we were talking about like, is there anything on your mind? I'm like, well, no. I'm like, well, that's not true. I mean, I've been all up in characterization lately, um, but I'm reading the chat room. What I would say. And this is um, tertiary. What happens um, in shows like NCIS, and we saw it in Stargate, and we saw it. I didn't see it personally, but I I witnessed the reaction to it in Teen Wolf. Um, Saw it to some extent probably in Supernatural. um, Is that fandom latches on in a certain way to characters. And that causes shipping, and it happened in Hawaii Five-O. I believe that across the board, that the reason that Danny slept with his ex-wife was because of the Tony Steve shippers. I think that a lot of times writers in Hollywood um, have so much internalized homophobia that when a huge pairing happens in fandom, they they have this visceral and disgusting response to it and it destroys characterization. I think that's why Gibbs ended up the way he is. I think that's why um, 
we saw that fracture in Danny's personality and his ethics in Hawaii Five-O. That is definitely why Jack O'Neill turned into a son of a bitch for like a whole season in Daniel Jackson's direction mm-hmm. before they toned it down a little bit. But by then, the chemistry was completely destroyed. Yep. But when they cast these these actors together for chemistry, um, they want that chemistry for the show, but they don't want fans to enjoy that chemistry in a way other than what they've designed. So they end up fucking characters up um, to make that impossible, but it honestly doesn't work, and I wish they would realize that, because I don't care who you put Rodney with on Stargate. I don't care. It just makes fandom more stubborn, is what it does. So they just need to leave well enough alone. I mean, look what happened to Derek. I mean, the Derek style ship. I mean, telling those people no really didn't work in their, didn't work the way they thought it would. Yeah, because they they did all that baiting to get attention and to get press, and then um, it backfired on them. It probably ruined their show. It probably would have lasted if they. Cause I, I think they even changed it. In my in my opinion, from what I've heard, because I, I the only thing I've seen in the show is snippets I've seen on YouTube, and I've I've watched one episode. Um, and I forwarded through big chunks of the episode I did watch. So, what I know about some things I've read and pl- plot synopsis that I've seen um, through fandom, I think they changed the dir- they changed the direction of the writing to get the, to- the Derek Styles chemistry out of the show. I mean, they, they so changed you don't the direction of the plot together probably, anymore. They, Even when they were on the show, that they no longer had scenes together. Right, and they ruined the chemistry of their show. The thing that people were loving about the show and coming to watch it for, they ruined it. Um, and it probably killed their show. It's just, and mm, one of I mean, my favorite terrible. things to have witnessed on the outside is supernatural, because I don't agree with that whole Winces thing anyway, right? So, like, okay, the writers see this, they, they see this happening, and we gotta fix this. We can't have the Winces. We can't have this. is terrible. This Winces. Oh my God, what are we gonna do? Let's give them a hot angel. Now, how? much do you think they thought about making Castile a girl? For like a hot second they thought girl but then they thought no because that's not what our fandom really wants. Right. It's not going to work people. If we give them a girl angel they're still going to keep on shipping. So, so we're going to give hot male um, angel um, and we're uh, a little queer baiting. But there won't be anything. It'll be all chemistry and, and innuendo and subtext and um but 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 it really didn't kill that part of fandom. The the Wincess continued. It just sometimes became a threesome. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, but then but then they added they made they what they did is it backfired in a spectacular way because they truly did launch a mother ship. Like, if you were to look at, you know, the kind of ships that can take over fandom, SDL is huge. Huge. Um, 
and it's just astonishing that they're like, well, it did it that not only did we we, we kind of expected the the angel uh, angel dean thing. We kind of expected that was going to happen. That's why we picked the dude. But now we've got two. What are we going to do? Um, now, to be fair, super, the supernatural creators do have a little bit of a sense of humor about some of this stuff because they tend to do episodes where they just acknowledge that this stuff exists. Um, like their episode where they talk about um, the brothers being slashed together. Yeah. Like, I, I actually find that very funny. I find that very funny that they talk about, that Sam and Dean on the show talk about the fact that they have fangirls who slash them together, like, as if they were real people, <laughs> which would make it RPF, right? Real person fiction in right. the supernatural world. It wouldn't and be fan fiction. It's RPF. RPF for Jensen and Jared. There, there Jensen is. And Jared. There's a lot of it. Supernatural yeah. RPF is huge. But I just find it funny that they, they, they worked RPF into the show, but it's about it's about Dean and Sam, and they're like, "Ew, us together? Don't they know we're brothers?" <laughs> so they kind of are. They're kind of supernatural has a little bit more of a playful edge about how they handle fandom than a lot of other shows, even though they still kind of are trying to, to turn it off. Because if they really were trying to turn off fandom, they would separate Dean and Sam completely. Um, whereas other shows are just like like what they did with Hawaii Five O with having Danny be sleep with his ex-wife. A dick. Um, douchebag. Yeah, turn him into a douchebag. Um, and um, like Stargate, Stargate's a classic example of where they just completely ruined the show's chemistry with what they did with Jack. Um, so that by the time he left the show, like no one cared. It's like, oh. And of course, I think, I think the show died um, at that point from my perspective. I didn't like the show after that. But, um, you know, it's just... When, when shows, um, when shows, for whatever reason they do it, when shows ruin their characters' characterization, if, if they do it deliberately to try to control fandom in some way, it always backfires on them because all fandom then does and goes, <gasps> not only do I have my character and my ship, now I have something to fix. <laughs> and I just don't understand the mentality. You do not want to give fandom something to fix. Which is the worst thing you can possibly do to fan. Oh, hell yes. <laughs> I like wonder how watching... many dead air tags existed 48 hours after Dead Air aired. Right. I mean, there would be times when I'd be watching episodes of NCIS and I would go, there's going to be a fuck ton of fan fiction in the morning. <laughs> I'm going to stay up all night trying to fix that shit. <laughs> there's going to be episode tags. And, like, the ones I predicted, like, the, I was pretty new to reading NCIS when Boxed In aired, and so I wasn't prepared for getting up in the morning and finding all these Boxed In tags. I was like, what's this? But by the time Requiem came on, which was, like, Requiem was more than two years later, I was like, oh, there's going to be fan fiction in the morning. <laughs> That's the one where Gibbs goes off the grid. and apocalypse put... in the morning. Yeah. And then the dead air, you're just like, oh, this is never going to end. The fanfic on this one is never going to end. When I, when I watched it, I thought, I said, oh, God, Tony's going to die a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Although people killed him less than I expected them to. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But, see, what happens is um, is if you create a character that people can identify with, like Tony Denozo or um, 
like McKay in Stargate. Uh, I um very attached to McKay from almost the moment he appeared on Stargate SG one. I was like, Oh God, he's such an arrogant asshole. I love him. <laughs> I want to see more. I was so excited when David Hewlett was cast on Stargate Atlantis, and I was really hoping that we'd get the same character, and we did. And it was like, hell yeah, Rodney going to Pegasus. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. And it was, because he's terrible, right? And it was great. It was great, because we got this this terrible, arrogant, um, flawed, brilliant man who... Um, got a great ass. He's not bad to look at at all. And I'm like, yay! I'm so excited. And then, and then they made the mistake of casting the prettiest non-A-list actor they possibly could. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they did. I was like, what I was were you like, holy shit! Why? You know what? Whoever, whoever made the mistake on SG One was obviously not involved in the casting of SGA. Because if he had, he would never have... Joe Flanagan would have never gotten that part. Because it was like... And then you could almost see from the very beginning that Joe Flanagan was playing the part like he was in the closet and totally Rodney's boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) Complete with that whole sleeping on the couch thing during Duranda. I mean, it was just, it was there. It was it was all there. It was just like, the the subtext wasn't so sub. And it was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> and like, even okay. when they introduced a, a love interest for McKay, it, it was it like, was okay. It was flat as a pancake. Beard. It was like, really? There's the beard. And that was really more about getting... Jewel State on the show, but also filling a nerd fantasy for the writers, I think, more than it was for the character. Because, um, you know, Jewel State, Firefly, you know, it was a nerd fantasy. Cheerleader, nerd gets the cheerleader kind of thing. I don't think it was a freak out. Um, as far as Keller is concerned, I I really do think that was about um, that was pure idfic. Yeah. Now that I know what it means, that was totally the writer indulging in a little bit of id, and the nerd getting the girl. Otherwise, they witness up that whole love triangle with Ronan. Just let's be honest. I love myself some David Hewlett, but there is no. Frankly, no other actor on that series was attractive enough to compete with Jason Momoa. <laughs> no, okay? there really wasn't. That was just <laughs> they're really just no. They're just, they 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 brought Ronan on. It was like, oh, I hope he's going to be permanent. <laughs> Yay! I need to look at that every week. I'm so shallow. Wow, I'm so excited. But so no, that was that was pure. Nerd fantasy. I don't think that was a homophobia flail. Because even when it was going in that direction, even when Rodney was falling apart and telling Jennifer he loved her when he had that parasite in his brain, who, throughout that whole episode, did he demand and call for and cry for and just, it was always John, 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 John. And it was just like, okay, you know. 
And, and yep. who did Rodney spend 10,000 years in a hologram form to to save? Not his wife who died of the Hoff virus, but Shepard. During that last season, they totally acknowledged that, McKay, that, that John was the love of Rodney's life. And that maybe he had given up on, on getting that love, so he settled for Keller. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think I think SGA was a lot more consistent and less queer baiting than a lot of other shows um, that wind up with a lot of chemistry in the main pairing. I mean, I don't know how many of you um, watch the Magnificent Seven TV show, The Western, the, me- the the chemistry between Vin and Chris, from the first episode, I mean, it was incendiary. It just, it like blew up the screen. And they, now kept, doing, watch it. they kept doing weird shit to try to keep the two of them apart. And I was like, what are you doing? I mean, this is like, and it, but then they would like bring them together. And it was just, it was so strange. But I mean, I just, it. Oh, it was just the the that was and that was played by um oh why am I blanking on names um oh come on Jilly what's the matter with you um the guy from the Terminator movie um Michael Bean yes and um Eric Close. Well, Michael Bean and Eric. So Michael Eric Close played uh, Vin, and Michael Bean played um, um, Chris Larrabee, and and uh, yeah, yeah. It was I mean, their chemistry was just like holy crap, and so of course it's the biggest ship in that fandom. Um, but a lot of people didn't want to write. Um, I actually think it's the chemistry of that duo for the two two whole seasons that that thing lasted on the air. The chemistry of that duo was so popular that it, it's people didn't want to write Old West stuff, that they created all these modern AUs that are more popular than the original fandom. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> Which is pretty impressive that you can take an AU and have it be bigger than your 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 parent fandom because the, one single AU be more that the the right the author that the invent the creator opened up for anybody to write in is bigger than the parent fandom because people are like well I really want these guys and 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 sometimes I forget that they're not an ATF crime drama show because I've read so many stories of them in the ATF I forget that it's a western that it originated as a western <laughs> and I have to just remind myself go oh yeah that's right. ATF, that's right. They're on the Old West show. I mean, their chemistry was just unreal, and um, I, I just I think the producers or the directors they just didn't want to deal with that, and so they just found all these different ways to ruin it. I have no idea. Sometimes I wonder what's going on with the writers of NCIS. I sometimes think the NCIS writers are both, at w- on one hand, brilliant, and on the other side, complete boneheads. 
because I've never seen a show that ruins characters and is so inconsistent about characterization the way they are. There's not a single character that they have not had massive characterization issues with. Not one. Um, you had... Um, <laughs> there, I'm there sorry, your chat room got me. Yeah. Yes, Temp. There, Houston Knights, it was not a centaur show. There was an AU where the people on the show were centaurs. So, but it was not a show about centaurs running around Houston. I ought to watch that. I would too. <laughs> I did not watch it. There, there, you go, there you go, Hollywood suggestion. Make a show about centaurs running around Houston. Or or really anywhere. It would be fine. We don't care. But NCIS had characters that people really latched onto, like almost all of them early on. And and then they just kept making them wild. I mean, you'd turn around from episode to episode, and you'd be like, why would someone who did this in the prior episode do that and this? It doesn't make any sense. Why would you have someone that you... You know, like Kate, they set her up as a profiler early on, and then they n- never had, never, in the in the two seasons that she was on the show, she never profiled anybody successfully. Never. Correctly. <laughs> Correctly, yeah. And she was always wrong. Oh, he wrong. never do that. He's Catholic. <laughs> right. He has kind eyes. I mean, it's just like Kate was always wrong in her profiles, and yet they set her up to be the team profiler. Um, and Kate was the character they were almost the most consistent about. Um, so it was just, it was just, so it's, and, and Gibbs, Gibbs and Tony probably the most inconsistent, it's, especially Tony. Tony, Tony swung from super competent to, um, a complete idiot, and, um, you never knew which Tony you were going to get. I mean, you could tell, you could tell when an author who liked Tony, a writer who liked Tony, was in charge of the script. You really could, because Tony's, I mean, Tony's, his his dialogue would be different. Um, his presence in the episode would be different. It, everything and, and it was. Like, I mean, I, and I don't I don't know how you convey it to the actors. Okay, Mark's writing today, so you're a dodo. Just accept it, and move on. But that's why it's really hard to latch onto, for especially for shows like NCIS. Um, what is the core Sorry. of the character? So. It's why you see so many different portrayals of characters like Tony and even Gibbs that all, in a way, feel true and yet can be completely different. And it's because the show gave you so much wiggle room to latch on to something. And I think what's important for a fan fiction writer is when you're deciding how is this character, how am I, is that you decide what you're going to latch onto, how you perceive them, and some things you're going to throw away. I mean, you just, you just have to. When you're dealing with inconsistent characterization in a show, you have to discard some stuff. You can't just explain everything away. For starters, that would be really boring. But you need to decide what that character is to you and then write them consistently. You need to not make the same so- mistakes that the show made and swing wildly around without any explanation. I'm very surprised, but not surprised. Um, I think if Michael Weatherly had been single, he might have moved on. But Michael Weatherly's not single, and he had a family to support. 
you know, every year, uh, for like several years running, I would read an interview with Michael Weatherly in one of the magazines over the summer, and they would ask him, what's coming up for your character um, next year? And almost every year there was a theme where he would talk about, we're going to see a lot of changes in Tony, he's going to really come into his own, da 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 And the fact that that was thematic in his interviews at the end of every season about what's coming up for Tony would tell me that he was, the way I read that is that he was going to the writers going, what's going on with my character? When is he going to evolve? When is he going to get out of this box? And they were saying, oh, we're going to do something with your storyline next year, and this is how you're going to evolve. And so so he, he signs on, and then nothing ever evolved for Tony. And then when he finally left the show, they asked him what he thought about, you know, Tony Dinozo's character, and he said he felt like that there was no place for the character to go, that it wasn't someplace, something, he couldn't get it out of the box that it was in. And I don't think it was him. I mean, he couldn't get it out of that box, right, because the writers weren't writing it out of the box. So I think that he knew, I mean, I imagine he knew years ago that that character, they were never going to, evolve that character because evolving that character would have meant Tony leaving the team which would have meant a complete restructuring of the show in some way and they would have had to have reimagined their formula and one thing NCIS has not been willing to do is reimagine their formula I agree Raven Raven in the chat room says that she felt like um, the character Denozo should have got one of the spinoffs I totally agree I think that if they had moved Weatherly into um perhaps the lead of NCIS LA, that that show would be much more successful. I agree. Um, But one of the things I thought was really interesting about Michael Weatherly leaving NCIS is that when it happened, they didn't think he was serious. They were like, oh, he just wants to renegotiate his contract. We need to put some more money on the table. And he was like, no, I'm I'm done. (laughs) It isn't about money at that point, you know, he, he at, at that point he had to know that he could get another show, and he, and he did. Um, CBS bent over backwards to get him another show. Oh ho! You want this? Would you like this? Here, Thaler, look at this one. <laughs> you can be really smart on this one. How did you feel? Because they were he had he had a movie lined up that he was going to do or something. Um, he thought oh, I've got this other project, and there was no talk about the show when he first resigned, when he first decided to leave the show, and then all of a sudden, Bull was on the table. CBS brought up the Bull pilot. Um, but the funny thing is, I remember I remember talking to some people who I know in LA, and they talked about that the big draws for NCIS were um, Mark Harmon and Polly Perrette, and that they were the anchors of the show, and that that's why Tony's character didn't get. A lot of development, and there's like been that perception, I think, um, for a long time that those, and yet when Michael Weatherly left, NCIS's ratings tanked, um, which makes me wonder how. Ah, oh, touched... guess what? Who really was the anchor? <laughs> there you go. <clears throat> I haven't watched it since. I didn't watch the last season Weatherly was on, and I haven't watched this season either. I've seen a couple of episodes um, enough to make me angry. Uh, Gibbs' personality completely changed. I mean, he is this kinder, softer, gentler Gibbs all of a sudden and, like, dresses better and acts nicer and um, treats he his team to. decently. Yeah. He has um, to. Because he, Here's he, the he thing about new... the character of Dinozo. He softened Gibbs. 
without Denozo there, McGee isn't a softener. Um, Bishop isn't a softener. Denozo was Gibbs' foil. And without him there, they had no choice, character-wise, but to soften Gibbs up. Otherwise, Gibbs looks like the biggest son of a bitch on TV. And that's exactly so what they, they sacrificed his characterization. Mm-hmm. Which, from a fan fiction writer's perspective, then of course just makes you angry on Tony's behalf because Gibbs turns into a decent human being the minute Tony's gone. Um, it's like, well, why couldn't you be a decent what human being when Tony was there? About NCIS is that they never actually bothered to develop Gibbs either. Yeah, or this transition really for him wouldn't have been so abrupt. Right. Gibbs suffered as much from lack of character development. He just wasn't as inconsistent. Because they all, what happens when characters don't get developed is they become caricatures. Um, They stay stuck and static, and they become caricatures of themselves. And that's what later season, when you get to about season, especially Abby is the perfect example of this. When you get to about season four Abby, she is a complete caricature of season one Abby. She's not got the depth and the fun and the humor of season one Abby. She just strikes you as trying too hard and annoying and childish. Um, Hello, she's almost 50. And and you don't want your characters to become caricatures, which is why they have to evolve and grow. They can't stay the same. And NCIS tried to keep its characters in a little box and not uh, not rock the boat, not change its formula, because it's been on the it was on the air a long it's on been not was it's been on the air a long time, and you can't just keep a team. You know, static that long. CSI couldn't keep a static team that long because it doesn't make sense. Um, and they had. I prefer NCIS New Orleans as, I mean, as well, Barbara. But I do think that if they had anchored NCIS LA with Weatherly, it would have been ten times better. Yeah, NCIS New Orleans I liked better until season three. Um, I, I thought the whole plot line um, about I don't the whole mind plot line. Too much. Oh, she drives me. I hear her voice. It's like nails on a chalkboard. I'm like, shut up. Oh, I can't stand her. And she's just, I just, I just find the whole plot line of what's going on with, um, I'll try not to give current season spoilers, but the end of the way end of the last season ended with NCIS Norman's getting blamed for something that wasn't their fault and then winding up the, and then that launching into the, the situation at the beginning of season three. It made, the problem is it doesn't make any logical sense to me. And so the whole season three feels like, so far, it's felt like a punitive thing for something that fundamentally doesn't make sense. Um, but I, I thought, I mean, Dwayne Pride is, you know, my somebody asked me who's, who's your favorite, you know, character in the NCIS franchise, it's Dwayne Pride. I mean, I really like him, but I can't stand I that Tammy person that they put in, in down there from the I'll FBI. I really enjoy Percy. I like Percy a lot, too. I'm really mad about how the last season ended for Percy. Um, that better not be. I'll be mad. <laughs> Just put it that way. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, so, you know, this is what happens when you're not um, consistent with your character or you don't allow your character to grow and to mature throughout your story is that they do become 
this static, terrible thing that when you do shift them, it's unnatural and weird, and it'll put your reader off. And you're like, what are you doing? What? Why, what? It's too late to make Gibbs grow as a person. It's also too late for Abby to grow up. Mm-hmm. You look at the character of, say, um, one of the things that <laughs> one of Chili's biggest pet peeves in the Harry Potter fandom, and it's pretty close for me, is that when um, writers change the way Harry grows up, and yet the events of book one take place exactly like they did in canon, with no accounting for how growing up in a different situation would have changed Harry's character and his personality. Um, and also be said, if you make Tony a really strong character out of the gate, moving through, saying, no, I'm not going to do this, this is unacceptable, and then you turn around and make him tolerate plot event after plot event after plot event that he said he wasn't going to tolerate, but then he turns around and does it. It's infuriating. Yeah, you just can't have everything play out the same when you fundamentally alter a character. You can't have a character, and it's like, there's this weird thing, it's like you, you can't have a character draw a line in the sand, and then, and then constantly be backing off from that. It's just, if, if they say no, you can't say, you can't say they're holding the line, but then, and then, but then, show that they're not holding the line. And that's a weird thing I, I sometimes think that writers don't realize they're doing. It's how they're having the character say one thing but act in a different way. So the character can keep saying, I'm not going to tolerate your behavior or whatever. This is very common in NCIS. I'm not going to tolerate your bad behavior. And then yet he keeps tolerating the bad behavior. It's like, well, that just makes him look like a dodo, like a wishy-washy flip-floppy dodo. I mean... Are you going to tolerate it or not? I mean, that's just then it's just words because you can't just you know just lip service to um, I'm going to be different or whatever doesn't doesn't isn't isn't a change in the character. It's just it's just actually amps up Tony's patheticness, quite frankly, when he says I'm not going to put up with you guys being insubordinate, and then he turns around and puts up with them being insubordinate for months. <laughs> yeah, really? for months. <laughs> Not once or twice, months. It's like, well, how does that work? So you have or to. Or Harry decides at the end of fifth year that he isn't going to take any more Dumbledore shit, but then he goes to a private drive just like he's been told to. I know <laughs> that is like. Uh. What? <laughs> I think or a lot of times, the crazy, especially the crazy Harry Potter, thing it's a, it's a fear of stepping outside the structure that canon gives you. Because right, the structure of the Harry canon is very, very um, solid. Um, J.K. Rowling gave you a perfect foundation, and she gives you a lot of structure to play around in her world, which wasn't her intention, obviously. But she's, um, she, as a writer, she's very structurally sound. She has very defined environments, defined plot points, um, 
And honestly, I don't think people have a lot of problems with her world building, but they don't actually acknowledge what she did with that because Harry Potter, Harry Potter series is told almost like ninety percent of it is told from Harry's point of view, and he could not be the the least. He is literally the least curious wizard to have ever existed. Word. Yeah, dude. If she it's, wanted it's to have so a thing. If she wanted to have a big, robust world-building experience, it would have been Hermione Granger in the Philosopher's Stone. <laughs> yes, because Harry just—he just says he just isn't curious. He just all the things that could have been revealed to you just through Harry's natural curiosity aren't because Harry isn't curious about anything. Um, but also, I think that's one of the one pieces of characterization that she gave him that was spot on. Because from the very moment he landed in Derzgaban, he was taught not to be curious. Yeah. And that's an issue. That's the characterization thing, right? When she set up an she set she really kind of perfectly crafted the childhood for Harry that would make him not think he could count on adults. That would make him be willing to just go along with these crazy schemes and do all this stuff thinking he didn't need to go to adults, that he couldn't rely on adults, that an adult wouldn't listen to him. That, I mean, it was, it was kind of perfectly crafted from that point of view. So she sets up circumstances to craft characterization, and then he responds appropriately to circumstances. That's good characterization, right? That's what good characterization is. You have, you have, you have the, the external stuff that changes that determines how Harry's going to grow up and react, and then Harry responds in circumstances consistent with his characterization. So you go back and you change all of that. You give Harry loving, supportive parents his entire life, and yet he still goes on crazy shenanigans in his first year and never trusts adults and doesn't tell anybody what's going on. It doesn't make any sense. Now it's completely out of character. You've just completely violated Harry's characterization. And it, yeah, and it, it, it is one. I, Kira's completely right. It infuriates me. It absolutely infuriates me. Drives me batshit insane. But then you see somebody turn that in a way that's really horrific, like Harry being raised by Sirius, and he is this snotty Draco knockoff. No. Sirius Black wouldn't have raised Draco Malfoy. You can't no. turn Harry Potter into Draco Malfoy if Sirius raises him, because Sirius is the least like Lucius Malfoy character in the Harry Potter fandom. It, it is... No. Right. If you want if you want Harry to act like Gary Draco Malfoy, you're going to have to have him be adopted by Lucius. I hate to break it to you, but... Or be raised way, by Sirius' sh- mother. Right, that's the way that shit works. Actually, I don't know. Walburga produced Sirius. So I don't know. If yeah, but she also came from the family that produced Bellatrix. Right. True. I do think you know the easy easy way to get another Draco is to give it to have Harry to have a uh, Lucius and Narcissa raise him. That isn't a far fetched plot point. That isn't a far fetched plot. You know that Harry gets adopted by the Malfoys. That's not so weird. It could happen. 
It's way less. Then it ruins weird. their OTP. Well, well, you know, someone once told me my middle my my name was Jilly Ship Sinker James, so I really don't give a <laughs> shit about these ships. <laughs> I don't care about your OTP. What I would say um, is I tend to write Dumbledore either good or bad, depending on my mood. Um, From a candidate perspective, he is a neutral good. Um, He means well. He fucks it up, but he means well. He has the good of society on his mind, not so much Harry's goodness, but everybody else's. Um, But... What I would say is that Canon Dumbledore would not have allowed Lucius Malfoy to adopt Harry Potter. Canon Dumbledore would have probably killed Lucius Malfoy first. Because out of everybody else in, in Canon, Dumbledore knew what Harry's destiny was. And if Harry had been raised by Lucius Malfoy... He would not have been Voldemort's enemy. No, unless you ray. I mean, unless you recraft. I mean, you, you can. You have to. You can pick apart Lucius. I mean, you. There's all right. different kinds of things you can do to achieve your end. You know, I mean, it just depends on what you want. What do you want to do? I mean, do you want Lucius to be? A, do you want Harry? If you want Harry to be a dark wizard, who's not Voldemort's enemy? Then have him raised by the Malfoys, and he might act just like Draco. I mean, it just depends upon what you want to do. If he, if you want, if you, if you don't, if your ship is the issue, um, he can be raised by the Green Grasses. He can be. I mean, you just have. You just, I mean, there's just all these all these options, but people have a hard time stepping into what those options are. Instead, they um, um, throw together. They get an they 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 take an idea that feels less I don't know maybe less complicated or it would require less picking apart I don't know, and then they come up with a characterization that doesn't fit the environment that they've crafted. Um, I'm not imagining that. I just I need to not imagine that. Um, <clears throat> so. There are two kinds do- of stories that you that you can tell. There is a character-driven story, and there is a plot-driven story. When your character drives your story, your characterization is on top of your narrative, and it is one hundred ten percent more important than anything else you do. When your character is driving the story. You have to bring your A game. When your plot is driving your story, your character has to serve your plot. And that means that your character's background has to meet their plot actions one, two, three, all the way down the road. Ninety-five percent of you are plot-driven writers. Even if you are pantsing the fuck out of it, it's plot-driven. It's not an insult. Although some writers would say it is. (laughs) But it's not. So, 
when you do that, your characterization must be spot on to fit your plot, which is what Julie's talking about. If your character grows up um, in Durzgaban, Harry has been neglected at the least. He's been neglected. He's been treated like a second-class citizen. Um, he's played defense his whole life. He comes into Hogwarts. He's not going to play deep on offense all of a sudden. And if you want him to have that switch, he needs to have a, a, a catastrophic event. There are several times in Harry Potter canon where Harry could have had that break. That break that knocked him free of the mindset that Petunia drilled into his brain. And the first one comes when he sees dump, um, Voldemort under that fucking turban. That could have been his moment. The second one is when he's dying because he's been bitten by that basilisk. That could have been his moment. And you can take these moments, and fan fiction writers often do take these moments and turn the character, and it becomes a moment, okay, enough, fuck this shit. I'm, no, this is, you know. Those are moments where it's easy to turn a, a, an abused, neglected, defensive child into an offensive force within the confines and structure of Rowling's canon. Does that make sense? Makes sense to me. (laughs) Well, Austin, I discovered, Jilly, that you're not actually a good audience for that. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Because we're not having that third-person conversation again, (laughs) you assholes. I love you guys. I love you, but we're never having that POV conversation again. <clears throat> no, no, never. What's the point of view? No, 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 no. Um, no. Mm-mm. Characterization. And fan fiction, one of the things I like about fan fiction is that fan fiction allows you to. Characterization, I think, is is one of the harder skills for writing original fiction. And I, I know not everybody wants to write original fiction, but some of you do. I think characterization is the really the hardest thing to master because characterization is one of the, it will, and maybe I'm biased, but characterization will turn me off of a story faster than almost anything. Really flat characterization is really unappealing to me. It's like, well, this is really the characters, this, um, and it's because I. I'm also a character-driven reader. You know, I really like reading about interesting characters. Um, I really like a really riveting plot too. But if it's just, it's a really riveting plot and the characters suck, I'm not going to keep reading it. That's just. I mean, I just. I gotta have it all. I mean, you want the cake and eat it. I mean, what's the point of having cake you're not going to eat with frosting? So, one of the great things I think about fan fan fiction is it allows you to take characters and play with characterization and play with recrafting it, taking an established character and and tweak it, move it, shift it. You know, how do you take someone like Dumbledore and, you know, change him a few degrees um, from, you know, 
neutral good to I actually think Dumbledore as the series went on really did take a good slide towards true neutral. Um Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is really dangerous because, you know, um I think a true neutral can can be a really dangerous character. Um I think you see that turn for him um with when the diary is discovered. When his speculation about the Horcruxes is is realized and he realized deeply how much of a threat Voldemort still remains. Um, and Harry stops being a child because he's already re- revealed himself um, to be a parcel mouth. He's already revealed himself strong enough to kill a basilisk. He, um, he's proving himself over and over again to be Voldemort's equal, and he stops being a child and he becomes a weapon. Yeah. And so I think he made a shift from where we see him in the beginning in the way he kind of is in that sort of that alignment thing. Um, and I think that when you, when that kind of happens to a character, it that kind of influence is probably not good because it means something is pulling at them, and that that's where you get the evil influences. And because Dumbledore made that shift in canon, it's easy to shift him a little bit further and make him worse. Um, it's also easy to shift him and make him a little better than he was in canon, give him better motives than it seemed like he had in canon. So characters that kind of are, you know, the closer to neutral can- characters are, the easier they are to kind of turn them a little bit, you know, and and play with their characterization, amp up certain traits, um, and still make them recognizable. And fan fiction is great for picking out characters you can do that with. Tony is one where you can... Um, you could write Tony is a complete idiot buffoon and probably have it resonate as sounding in character. I wouldn't like it. Please don't. But you could. <laughs> Tell me you could because there's a canon pres- precedent there for, for him being kind of a um, more of a playboy idiot sometimes than um, some other things. So, you can you can play with aspects as they're presented to you in a canon character, and that teaches you some skills if you're paying attention to what you're doing. I think I sometimes think people are kind of some people do instinctively jiggle characterization, and they aren't really aware of what they're doing. They're not making conscious choices, and sometimes and sometimes that backfires because since they haven't made conscious choices, they're doing it instinctively. It's like it's going really well, really well, really well, really well, but then they make a misstep. And something is wrong, and they can't figure out what happened. And it's because they violated their own characterization as they've written it. But because they didn't make conscious choices about their characterization, they don't know how to back up, and, and they don't even came in a spot where they messed up. And so sometimes an alpha reader comes in and goes, well, you know, well, I'm sorry, but, um, you know, Harry, as you've written him, in this, in this w- wouldn't have stolen Snape's potion supplies or whatever. He wouldn't have done that. And you're like, that's oh. A, that's a, actually a very difficult moment for an alpha reader. Um, and Julie and I have had this moment 
in something that she wrote where um, I saw something that she didn't see, and, and it was what was putting her off. But and I was like, oh God, do I tell her? Is she, is she doing this on purpose? If I if I point it out to her, is she gonna get offended? <laughs> you know, because I you know, and um, the first time I had ever alpha read for her, and I really didn't know how she was going to respond. And when you have that situation as an alpha reader, um, it's best to respond with a question. It's always actually better to respond with a question than an accusation, um, because it's um, oftentimes completely not on purpose. Um, did you mean to make Tony a pansy? Is not a good question. <laughs> yeah, that's very. Did you make? Did did you mean to have Tony um, respond from a place of weakness in this scene? That probably would still offend some people, <laughs> but there's just so many ways. But sometimes you, can ask. you have to you ask a difficult question. Um, <clears throat> are you sometimes, aware sometimes that you have this whole thread of of racism running through your story? I've seen that, yeah. not in Jilly's work, um, but I've seen um, I've seen sometimes. Racism can be so casual that you don't realize you're doing it. And I think one of the most prevalent examples of this happens in Stargate. With the ousting of Aiden Ford as a series regular on Stargate Atlantis, they turned the black character into a drug addict. And my mouth dropped open. I was like, are you fucking serious? Is that how you... Really? And then there's another um, incident in Stargate Atlantis where Jason Momoa um, had to cut his hair because it was giving him headaches. It was too heavy. He had those dreadlocks for years. Um, I mean, years and years and years. And he couldn't handle it. And um, he cut his hair, and they were, and the writers were like, okay, we'll just ride it out. We'll, we'll have this great episode where you can be captured by a race, and it can be like this whole um, warrior um, thing where you cut your hair, and it'll be awesome. And then and, and they wrote it, and I think they probably even filmed it, and MGM was like, no, 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 no. He needs the dreads that makes him look like an alien. Really? Dreads make him look like an alien? Me? Are you fucking kidding me? I think it just makes him look like my neighbor, but okay. <laughs> but I don't like, think that, you know, looking at it from an outside perspective, that, that they meant that to be racist, but it was particularly yeah. racist. And turning Aiden Ford into a drug addict was particularly racist. It was very casual racism. Oh, how do you get rid of the black kid? Oh, we'll just make him a drug addict. An instant drug addict. But the white dude that got fed on repeatedly and then given all that aid, that um, energy back through a reverse race feeding didn't have any problems with addiction. Later on, when they're all dosed with Wraith en- Enzyme and Rodney overdoses on it to to escape, 
he doesn't have any problems either. Yeah. But Aiden Ford immediately becomes a, a an enzyme addict, a drug addict. And not just and not just a drug addict, is that in order to feed his his habit and to keep it going, he creates a criminal empire practically and gets other people addicted to drugs. He becomes so he's a, drug a fucking dealer. drug dealer in Pegasus. Yeah. Yeah. So he becomes a drug dealer and a criminal. So he's sort of like he's sort of like a gang leader. They turned Aiden Ford into a Pegasus crip. Yes, it's terrible. But see, and this is what this is why I brought this up because sometimes in fandom, when you are um, when you want to make a, a character of color um, a bad guy, you might fall on stereotypes and cliches that are deeply, profoundly racist, and you need to be careful. This is also true when you make a woman a bad guy. Don't make a woman a bad guy for some female fucking cliche. It's sexist. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I had a hard time with, um, in, when I, in the story I'm working on for Rough Trade, Catalyst, it really bugs me that all of the bad guys in in those canon episodes that I'm dealing with are all in ethnic-related gangs. Of some sort, you've got you've got um, the Chinese gang, you've got the Yakuza's, you've got the um, the Irish, you've got um, the Mexican gang, the Mexican cartel um, in the in the NCIS episode. It actually, I mean, I'm sitting there going, I mean, and, and the thing is, there's nothing. I mean, I'm working with those events, but I'm sitting there going, oh, this is just. Why is it? Why are they? Why? Why is? Why are all of the big, the big criminal enterprises, um, ethnic or racially oriented? It's just really annoying me. So, I just take a character like Derek Morgan, who um, was a cop, turned into an FBI agent. You don't turn him into a thug to make him a bad guy. No, no. If you're going to make a bad guy, do it, do it with somebody else. Especially if you're going to make Derek a bad guy, make him a serial killer. That, that'd be novel, actually. But this is a complete aside. It's not really about characterization. This is about um, something I see. In, um, this is about epithets. Fan fiction writers overuse epithets to begin with. So, A, scale it back. Okay, just in general, stop it. Quit calling Tony the Italian. Okay, quit calling <laughs> Steve the Seal. Okay, but if you have a black character or an Asian character or whatever you've got in your story, if you're not running around calling your other characters the white guy, quit calling your black character the black guy. It jumps out that all you care about with that character is the fact that they are a different color. It's so off-putting to me when I'm reading a story and Derek is referred to as the the black profiler. Stop. The black I, agent. Legit, Stop. just quit. If you aren't calling Hodge the white profiler, don't call Derek the black profiler. There's just no fucking reason for that shit. Or the lawyer just profiler, call, which is just as insulting. <laughs> right. Just Just call him Derek. There's nothing wrong with a character's name. Fandom, fandom has taught us to use epithets when publishing houses will tell you to quit it. 
But it's like this repetition of names has somehow become demonized in fandom, fan fiction. And this happened a long time ago. It's not like it's new. You've learned your bad habits, honestly, in a way. But stop. Okay? It you happens don't need with to the t- splash writing. You have he, 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 his, her. You know, it, it becomes difficult when you, he did this, he kissed him. You but, can do it some, but you just – but it needs to be relevant, right? It needs to be relevant. Like if you need moderation. to remind someone – if you need to – if you want to – you can use epithets to remind someone subtly, what, like what someone does. Like if you want to remind somebody that somebody's a chemist, like you've got a room full of scientists, and one of them gets up to do something, and you want to remind them that this one's the chemist, call them the chemist or the botanist or something like that. But you can't do it all the time. It's useful. You can make it a tool – but when it's just when you distill somebody down to, you know, and like when you call Tony the Italian, when people call Tony the Italian, it makes no sense. Tony has no connection to his Italian heritage at all in canon. He doesn't look Italian. So calling him the Italian is just a reference to his last name. Also, um, keep in mind that a lot of times, you know, calling somebody the botanist is descriptive. Um but a descriptive term should never replace the person's name. It, right. So, especially in dialogue, because you don't want Gibbs calling Tony the Italian. I've seen that. Don't do that shit. And it also there's it also can be a function of point of view, is that if Gibbs is constantly thinking of Tony as his SFA, um, as opposed to and referring to him as his SFA in his own narrative, that tells you something about what Gibbs thinks about Tony, as opposed to ever using his name, or calling him his agent or whatever. Um, so you're conveying something whether you mean to or not. So be careful when you do that. Um, we had this it's discussion deper- about depersonalization. Yeah, we've had, we had this discussion about James Bond calling um, Q a boffin all the time. If you're in James's point of view, he's dismissive about every. He's constantly thinking of Q as the boffin. He is dismissive of everything about Q except for a narrow set of traits. So it almost it almost tells you there's no personal relationship. So it can be then jarring if they're in bed together. And super, super jarring if James is thinking of him as the boffin when he's fucking him. It's just weird to me. Um, and you don't see, and this is something and you see pretty much exclusively in fan fiction. Or also, self-published um, stuff. Let's discuss boffin. Because um, it, it's a dumb word. Okay? It's dumb. It's, I, I, it's so it's prevalent. dumb, and it's also used um, – it's an insult. It's like calling somebody a nerd. So um, if you wouldn't call your character a geek in that context, don't use the term boffin. B-O-F-F-I-N. Um, and also, Americans don't use this word. Not ever. I had to look it up the first time I saw it. I'm like, what the fuck is this word? It's actually a um, term that was coined 
during one of the world wars to refer to um, engineers and technical people. Um, and it got kind of brought up again in British culture um, to, re- to refer to geeks and nerds and stuff like that. Um, and it is often used as an insult. It can be a term of endearment, but it is like you can call your friend a dork, and that can be a term of endearment. But it can also be an insult. So if you wouldn't call your character a nerd in a particular sentence, don't use the word boffin either. Because when you use that kind of slang, it um, it takes away from the precision of your language. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 on the point of characterization, it speaks to their character. When when James Bond is walking through headquarters, and he thinks about the boffins scurrying about doing their work, he is just that is super dismissive of them, and it shows how little what they're doing means to him. Would it be how I would read that? And that would could actually be a very good characterization choice. Huh? It also borders on objectification. Yeah, but it could be a good characterization choice. So if you're doing it on purpose to show that he has no insight into what they do, that he doesn't care about what they do, that he kind of objectifies them, that might be a really good word to use, is to have him be that dismissive of them and use that particular word. If that's not what you're intending to convey, however, it might not be a good idea. But is that kind of objectification is, in that sentence that she said, basically implies that James Bond thinks they're all one big machine working for him. That the, that their product is more important than them individually. Right. And he may see them that way. That's a choice that you make for your, for the character. Um, but if that is a choice you make for the character and you are shipping him with Q, eventually he needs to grow past that. <laughs> there needs to be a a moment of, of realization that he um, finds value in the work that they do for him. Otherwise, he's just a dick. Which... Is also canon, but yeah, if you want James Bond to grow, I mean, none of the How other people, writers who've ever written him did. But you know, if you want him to grow, <laughs> I mean, canon people, writers, not fan fiction writers. How, how you how you refer to your people, how your characters think, how they how they interact, how they think about each other, how they refer to each other, that all speaks to their character. And you convey things whether you intend to convey them or not. And that's why how you choose your epithets is important if you're going to use them. Um, And there are many times when I read a scene that's got a lot of epithets, but I would rather see 50 Tonys than um, tall agent, um, Italian. uh, I mean, especially if it's a scene where it's supposed to – Good God, if you're in Tony's point of view, he cannot think of himself as the Italian. That is so weird. Oh, it's just a, <laughs> what, But see, the like, thing is, is, from Jilly's perspective, and, now, and we've discussed this before, that, that, that Jilly has a very deep POV narrative. Um, while I would, in Tony's point of view, um, use Dinozo or Tony probably um, interchangeably, I wouldn't use the Italian either. And I ride high on my narrative from POV. Um, I am I am closer to... Um, um, say it for me. 
Omniscient. Yeah, omniscient. Yes, than than Jilly. Jilly's deep in her character. I'm riding above my narrative in my POV. Um, My characters are never all-knowing, but um, it is more of, say... My POV character is almost uh, look, lo- looking into a window. Almost. Mm-hmm. It's right there on the edge. And um, I'm not suggesting that you emulate me or, or Jilly or anybody else. This is, this, this is part of your author voice. This, this is who you become. The shape of you um, as a writer is defined on how you, um, how you weave your POV into your narrative. Um, and this is honestly not even a conscious choice. Um, I don't even think I realized that about myself until I realized what she was doing. Yeah, because it, it came up in a beta once where she had been very consistent about John. We were in John's point of view, and John had referred to himself as John every time until the end, and all of a sudden he was Shepherd, And it threw me. Now, she, she does that. She does switch between John and Shepard or Rodney and McKay in most of her stories. But in that one scene, she hadn't done it. And I don't, I never, I, and I don't go back and check and see people resolve stuff. So I don't know if she added more Shepherds in to balance it out or if, if she just left it the way it was because it wasn't important. But I, so this really threw me that he's thought of himself as John this entire time. Because Tony, in my stories, if you're in Tony's point of view, he never thinks of himself as Dinozo. He's never Dinozo in his own point of view. And how characters think of each other in their point of view and in their narrative is part of reflective of what's going on with them. So when Tony doesn't know people well, they're always he always thinks of them by their last name. And when he knows them better or when they are on a first-name basis, he starts thinking of them more often, maybe not always, but more often by their first name. Um, and as he, like when he transitions into a relationship with Gibbs, um, he will be Gibbs in Tony's head or boss until they're in a relationship, and then gradually he'll become Jethro in his mind. And then he will always be Jethro in Tony's narrative, and he will never be Gibbs unless they're at work. And that's a very that's something that I do almost instinctively. But yeah, yeah it's an unconscious. When I noticed at this point, it. it's also deliberate. When I noticed it about her, I was doing a beta for her, and it had it was. Um, it was a scene where John and Patrick Shepard are in the scene, oh, and it's dad. in John's POV. And she did a dialogue tag with the word dad. Dad said. Because it was in John's POV, and it was Patrick Shepard speaking. And I went, whoa, what? Because <laughs> John, when I write John, John doesn't think of, I mean, John doesn't assign um, that kind of relationship data to dialogue tags. It's always Patrick, Matt. It isn't my brother said, my father said. Well, sometimes it's my father, you know, his, you know, watched his father do this or do that, and that's different. But with the dialogue tag, it was dad said, and it threw me completely. I was like, what? What? <laughs> and then it was all I saw in that scene. And that's when I realized just how deep her POV is and how um, how mine kind of rides on top, and that's what we talked about before. And these are things. This this is really an instinctual thing that will develop for you. The more you write, which is why I say always, 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 the only way to get better is to write, write, write. Yeah, 
Yeah, and you everybody will settle into their own settles into their own depth in their POV, you know, as to how deep you go. Um if I I would say I would I would say if I wrote exclusively in one point of view in a story, I would say that I wrote in deep third person. But because I do switch POV, I don't go quite that deep. But that using dad or mom in a dialogue tag actually is a, a hallmark of deep third person. Um which is almost practically first person. Right. And it's also things like deep third person, you don't have the words he thought, whereas in a higher level narrative, you would. Like, oh, oh my God, that's crazy, he thought, is a, is a hallmark of a higher level narrative. Whereas in a deep third person, you just have the thought, oh my God, that's crazy, and, period. And you would probably put it in italics to indicate that it was a thought, but you wouldn't yeah. tag it. Right. Because it's just, it's a different... The, the, and so I tend, I've always written in a deeper narrative, um, it, and it's very, it's where my comfort zone is. Um, it's hard for me to go up, but I've done it. I have written um, at, a, at a higher, higher, higher narrative where I'm not so deep in my, in my point of view. But whatever you're doing with that, I mean, you'll come to whatever. I mean, sometimes you kind of come to this by what you like to read. You know, you you like to read a really deep narrative, you'll instinctively write a deep narrative. If you like to read something that's higher level, closer to omniscient, maybe that's what you're going to instinctively write. Um, I will say, if you tend to write a deep narrative, one of the there's, there's disadvantages and advantages to every point of view that you will write. One of the advantages to a deeper point of view is you rarely head hop. Because you are so in your point of view, it never occurs to you to think about what somebody else is thinking. So head hopping is usually not an issue with a deep point of view. Um. <laughs> Sorry, somebody made me laugh. There's something in the chat room. So we're talking about epithets and stuff. That somebody else using epithets that go over, wait, go way over. It's when, when you start referring to somebody as the former, the former anything, that's really, really unnecessary. Like calling Tony a former cop is way worse than just calling him the agent. It's practically <laughs> just saying the current agent. <laughs> I know. It's just, like, it's, just, it's just crazy cake. The current you know? SFA asked the current lead agent <laughs> if he wanted coffee. <laughs> but one of like so I'll give you a disadvantage of writing in a deep point of view is you have to really store when you change points of view. When you're in a deep point of view, you got to really sort out your character voice because if you're not careful, all your characters will wind up sounding the same. Whereas when you write a little in the narrative, I don't mean in your dialogue, I mean in the narrative, because they can all start to have the same feel when you're in a deep point of view if you don't have your character solid in your mind. Um, whereas in a higher point of view, I mean, when you're writing at a higher level in the narrative, you don't have to worry about that as much. Because you're not bringing your character voice to the narrative. You're only bringing it to the dialogue for the most part. Did that make sense? Yeah, it did. No, I don't agree. (laughs) With the chat room, I agree with you. I don't agree with the chat room. No, Tim, don't don't teach them bad habits like that. (laughs) Really what, don't don't mo- don't model bad behavior. When, what what what's happening there in that particular sentence is um, 
telling. They're telling what sentence? Um, the telling sentence. I'm going to pick on you a little bit because you put it up there. Form, the, 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 the former cop started thinking about of, of what old contacts he could dig up for info. This is telling. It is always your goal in the narrative to show. Don't tell the reader that Tony is looking up old contacts. Show them. So instead of him thinking about it, he pulls out his phone, or he pulls out an address book. Um, he files through a couple of names mentally and says, okay, who can I call? And boom, 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 you got these names at this place. You know, I know Roger something at the D.C. Metro. I know. And, you know, and just <clears throat> give him active thoughts. Make his make him move in the scene. Make him active instead of um, inert thinking. That gives you a show versus a tell. And I think oh, there's probably some new writer listening to this thinking, "Oh my God, this is why why does she have to talk about this? This is so complicated." The thing is, is that it's um, something that you learn. And you will do instinctually. One of the things that I tell people about reading craft books and like listening to shows like this is don't try to do it. Just absorb it. Like I read two or three craft books a year, but I don't go out of these books thinking, okay, I'm going to go over there and do this technique right now. I just kind of absorb it and let it percolate in my brain. And it, this is just how I learn, and you could be different. Um, I'm not, it's one way or the other, you know, it's, it's not like a, you know, it isn't some concrete thing. Um, but, uh, I work best on new techniques and new styles by, um, just kind of incorporating them into my style and not forcing myself to do it. And, um, as a writer, you will instinctually learn, um, how to structure your scene, how to move your characters in that scene, your word economics, um, for a lot of people, it's a stumbling block, but eventually your sentences will tighten, your your POV will tighten, your your dialogue will sharpen, and the only way you accomplish this is by write, 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 write every fucking day. Write every fucking day. And don't try to do it in your rough draft, okay? I've talked to so many people who labor over every word, that's my best advice to you tonight is to not do that. Just write. Because, yes, you might get a perfect sentence in 15 minutes, but you could have gotten 500 words that you can go back and edit. Because you you, you are always going to have to edit. You're always going to have to edit. You're not going to get out of the editing process by laboring it. Get it out of your head. Tell the story. Then edit. The best writers out there all edit they all edit they all make it sharper they all make it cleaner they all, and you learn by editing you're going to learn by editing as much as you are by writing you're going to go back and read it and go wow that was really i used 50 words to say no i could have just said no <laughs> and, <laughs> and this is something that you really do learn from experience a lot of times people tell you to like oh you'll learn from experience and it's not really true it's bullshit and you want to like that's not fuck you, that, this is adulting, this is not what I had planned, this is bullshit, why don't you tell me how to just balance my fucking checkbook instead of letting me learn by example. 
Not that I have personal experience from that or anything. I'm just saying. But this is literally something that you learn by experience. Um, and there's no and, and there and, and you're not racing with anybody. You, there's no competition here. Um, you're gonna learn it at your own pace, at your own time, in your own way. And um, my way won't work for you. Neither will Jilly's. It has to be your way. It has to be how you visualize it. Which is why on this podcast I have an example of a character sheet um, that is not saying that you need to use that one. I, um, over the years, have made my own character sheet um, that I created um, by mixing other people's together and finding one that worked for me. Like what's important for me to know about a character might not be important to you. It might not be important to your story. Sometimes I don't need to know what um, my character wanted to be when I grew up. And sometimes I do. Also, I'm going to tell you something. You must always be honest with yourself about who your character is. But you can lie to your reader. (laughs) You can. You can tell them big old whopping lies. Unreliable narrators are saying, I don't like it, but you can do it. <laughs> and it doesn't even have to be unreliable. That's true. It can just be a lie. It can just be an outright lie. Um, your characters can lie. <laughs> I have a hard time with this one. I do. I do. My characters are like inherently obsessively honest. It is my biggest flaw as a writer. I have a real hard time with it. And then like when I do have my character lie, I'll fucking tag it. There's no, lying that's not the... true. Comma. In quote, Harry lied. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were meaning you warned for it. Like there's lying in this no, chapter. No. I literally call my character a liar right there in the dialogue tag. It is my biggest fl- it is my biggest flaw as a writer, I would say. Um but uh your character can lie and um it just you know, you have to um it's 100% important that your character, that you know your character, that your character doesn't do anything that surprises you, but you can surprise the fuck out of your reader. Mm-hmm. Okay, off-topic question. Talk about the former cop made me think of, but how much do you feel that you need to convey about canon facts, and how much do you assume people already know? That is a, I, I would give that, that's a big old depends. <laughs> it depends upon. That's a big old podcast by itself, really. Um, yeah. Because it really depends upon how much you're using those, the canon, to tell the story. And how much you're relying on it. Um, I actually never assume people know canon. I never assume it. Um I, people will get more out of my might get more out of my stories and and comprehend what's going on a little bit better or get more depth from it if they um, no canon or have seen the episodes in question. But I don't ever make the assumption that they people are going to remember it. Um, one of my actual pet peeves is retelling episodes, um, so I try not to do it. So. I use, so for instance, in Catalyst, I use an episode of Hawaii Five-0, 
a lot in the first episode and they, in the first episode of season eight of NCIS in the second episode of Catalyst. I don't think I use a single canon scene in either. I use before, after, around, and I talk to the canon events that are relevant to, for the reader to comprehend what's going on, but I don't actually touch on the scenes or the dialogue or anything that's actually used in the in the actual episodes. Because it's just a personal thing that I don't like is is regurgitating things that, that I could go watch on TV. Um, it, it's it's rare that I'll pull, I mean, every once in a while you just kind of have to pull a line of dialogue from a show because you're just, like, touch on it, but it's rare that I do that. But if you're going to, if you're going to tell around, like, really in an episode, one of the worst things you can do is not fill in enough detail that the reader comprehends what's going on. Because even if the reader has seen the show, they may not remember enough details to gather, to, to follow what's going on. So you have to tell it, not inch for inch like the show, but you have to tell enough to convey what's going on. And you have to walk that balance between retelling the episode and giving people enough info, not giving people enough information. There's honestly nothing more boring to me than me being told canon. I'd rather not know. <laughs> if I've forgotten the events of Boxed In, that's not your problem. <laughs> and this is actually um, one quirk of fandom that I do think can kind of make you lazy on the world building, which is why I've tried to get away from um, writing within um, canon events, because it was making me kind of lazy on my world building. So I've, I've been kind of like expanding and, and um, kind of experimenting with, with different AUs, because I was in, I was really relying too much on canon events to build my world, and that's just not good as a writer. Um, and I think that's a crutch that you get in fandom um, that you have to be really careful with, Um that um, and I was thinking about it, and I have honestly never once explained the Stargate in one of my Stargate fix because I assume that all my Stargate readers know how it works. <laughs> right. It's also it's sort of like you pick up a Harry Potter fic, and the first thing that they tell you is that Harry Potter lived at Number Four Privet Drive with the Dursleys, who were his aunt and uncle who didn't like him and didn't like magic. We know that there are probably <laughs> there are probably a hundred thousand NC. I mean, a Harry Potter fanfics that start that way. We know, legit. We know. Um, so I mean, it's I mean, I it, it's hard for me because I rewatched the three episode arc, which I hate this arc. I rewatched the three episode arc for Spider and the Fly um, in order to be able to tell to write the second episode of Catalyst, um, and not because I wanted to explore that episode, but because I wanted to have consequences for that episode because I'm diverging from canon. So like, Tony's not even in, not even where he was supposed to be, and what would be the consequences if things blew up um, to Tony? So I didn't want to retell those episodes, and there's huge chunks of details that I did not touch on in those episodes because they're not relevant to the story I'm telling in Catalyst. It's not relevant that Abby went to Mexico. It's not relevant that she was manipulated into investigating um, Pedro Hernandez's death. It's not relevant that she, um, and also Tony doesn't know any of this. He doesn't know that Abby found out about that Gibbs killed Pedro Hernandez. It's not re- none of that stuff that went on in the background in the first episode. Um, 
I can't remember what it's called, the one before um, Rule 51. Um, none of that's relevant to what happens in Catalyst. What's relevant, the relevant pieces, and they're relevant because of what it does, happens to Tony, is that the Reynosa cartel is targeting Gibbs' team because of a vendetta against Gibbs. I, so I have to convey that. I have to tell the audience that. Does it matter why they've got a vendetta against Gibbs? Well, I'm going to relay that they think Gibbs killed Pedro Hernandez. Whether he did or not, irrelevant. So that's important to relay that that's what's going on and that they're going to come after you. The interesting is that she even had Steve say it. That doesn't matter. (laughs) Doesn't matter. Right. Doesn't matter for our purposes. (laughs) Did he he do it? Steve's like, I don't care. He's on our jurisdiction. It's not not our case. (laughs) Um, So you have to figure out how to drop drop in enough that people who haven't seen that late in the season, because I know a lot of my uh, people who read my stories actually haven't seen um, that late in the season, that late in the series, because a lot of people stopped watching when, or way earlier in NCIS, so they haven't seen um, that arc where Gibbs, they, we find out that Gibbs killed Pedro Hernandez, which starts at the end of season seven and finishes, the arc finishes at the first episode of season eight, which coincides with the launch of um, Hawaii Five O, which is in the same universe as NCIS, which is why you can't jiggle those timelines, very fixed about that. I mean, no hand-waving of timelines of shows in the same universe. That's free. You guys do what you want. Um, <laughs> so so I decided, and I thought through, I re-looked at the canon, and I thought through, because I'm not retelling you the episode, what information is relevant for the reader to know from those episodes so that they understand what's going on with Tony. Because the episode's about Tony and Steve, it is not about Gibbs and Pedro Hernandez and the crap going on at NCIS. So regurgitating those three episodes of NCIS, which are completely irrelevant except as they pertain to Tony getting attacked and nearly killed. So I had to decide what pieces of canon I needed to tell the reader, and I cherry-picked which pieces I needed to convey and how to convey them and when to drop them into the narrative. So it doesn't even come up that Gibbs is, um, has been accused of ki- killing, is the best suspect for killing Pedro Hernandez, really until at the, close to the end of the, that episode of Catalyst, even though it comes up way earlier in the canon for um, NCIS. So when you're doing that, I, don't, I think that if you're going to use a canon event, that you have to explain enough of it that a reader who hasn't seen it can comprehend it. But you could make the choice to say in your author notes, if you haven't seen this episode, none of this is going to make sense and I'm not going to explain anything. That's totally your prerogative. I'm not telling you what to do. I just think that that's not the way I would choose to do it. I don't like it's retelling not storytelling. Episodes. No. I want it's to not good storytelling to... not to yet to give your reader the events they need for it to make sense. Anything else is unnecessary. Right. So giving you guys all of the that spider in the fly arc would be pointless. It'd be a lot of exposition that served no point because it's not relevant to to Tony and Steve's story. So. It's just, I mean, that's that's that's. And I and so the, I I kind of glomped on that question because I since I was just working with that scenario of having to juggle canon events and how much to tell, 
Um, that's the way I approach it. Is I'm more likely, you'll find a lot of my episodes, a lot of my, um, when I'm working NCIS, not episodes, a lot of my NCIS stories will fall in the summer months between seasons <laughs> because I can do whatever the fuck I want and not worry about what was going on in canon right then. Um, a, a, lar- a surprising Me. number of my episodes, my, my stories take place in the summer. I like to twist my, um, I like to twist a, a, a single event. That way mm-hmm. I can throw canon away, um, and no reader would reasonably expect me to keep it. Like, for instance, because I put Bates in charge of exploration on Atlantis for Revenant, um, I skipped a whole bunch of things that happened to John. Uh, the bug incident. Mm-hmm. The um, uh, Chaya, because Bates doesn't have the gene. Nobody on his team except Rodney has the gene, and Rodney's spending most of his time on the city unless Bates finds something ancient enough that he thinks that Rodney needs to see, then he comes back and gets him. Because he's not going to be responsible for having his his CO's boyfriend off-planet off for no good reason. So Rodney isn't out there trading for food, which I thought was probably a dumb idea to begin with. But... Because John's not out there in Pegasus making a mess, um, and Bates is an entirely different person and an entirely different character, and he's approaching this um, as an intelligence operation, um, and they're controlling how much anybody knows about Atlantis, the Janai just don't know what they are, and they don't know where they are. Um, So it's really kind of, I've tweaked it, that one character just kind of what, just, just kind of, tripled out through the entire thing and and everything is kind of rearranged and if and then I did what I did to Weir because I was because why not tired of her <laughs> well it happens to her in canon she does get a head injury um, and um, the only reason she survives it intact is because Keller does what Keller does but Keller's not on Atlantis um, and this Rodney wouldn't have done it because this Rodney isn't so interested in proving himself to Elizabeth Weir. To regaining her trust after Duranda, because Duranda hasn't happened. So when you tweak one character, and you tweak their arc, and you put these characters in different um, situations, you can um, step away from canon really neatly. And... Um, and do what you want. Then it kind of uh, it kind of destroys reader expectation, mm-hmm. and they don't know where you're going to go. Um, it's and I think for me that's really fun. And a lot of a lot of a lot of my stories are, and I think a lot of Kira's are departure point. Are we start at the departure point from canon or pretty close to it, um, where you can just assume that everything that happened up to that point happened more or less, unless we specifically address something that didn't happen. And we start at this departure point, and then from then on, canon is, is only as relevant as we decide to bring it in if we do. Um, and that gives you a lot of latitude because you can say, well, okay, so and this comes back to characterization because you go to and you say, okay, well, I changed this, this event significantly, so Tony's different or John's different or Rodney's different or whoever is different, Um how would things play out? Um, okay, so let me, let me give you an example. Um, and if found, um, 
Tony gets a call when he's with his father and brother that um, Gibbs is annoyed with him because he didn't um, go to the party at Ziva's place. So Tony finds out that he's been left out of this team event, but he doesn't care because Ziva's been tweaking him for weeks at this point. He's annoyed with her, and he knows that she's just yanking his chain. And also, he's just in a completely different place at that point because of the way I've changed the story that I went ahead and decided to let Boxed In happen, but it played out very differently because Tony's in a different place. So I could have just said Boxed In wasn't going to happen, but I decided to go ahead and let Boxed In happen despite this catastrophic, basically catastrophic change in Tony's life. And, but it played out differently because Tony was different. And that's a decision you can make, right, is if you make a departure point, and my departure point was frame up, and then you can decide how your character is different from that point and how they're going to interact with canon events going forward, if at all. What's changed, what's different, is everything new. And everything new, like Tony Lee's stories, canon becomes completely irrelevant. You don't ever have to deal with it at all. And you don't have to relay all of that... You don't have to relay, you know, 50,000 bad events um, in order to justify Tony leaving. You can if you want to, but you don't have to. What I would like to see is a story about Tony Dinozo leaving because he wants more. Before there's any betrayal, before there's any fucked up Ziva moments, just like maybe when Kate dies, before Ziva is ever assigned to the team, he has had the plague, he's lost Kate, he has an epiphany. I want more than what I've got going on here. And he just goes. And he asks for a transfer. Or he goes and joins the FBI. Or he moves to Hawaii and becomes Magnum. <laughs> and eventually just, meets you Steve know. because Mothership. Yeah, hello, Mothership. <laughs> but, <laughs> because you don't need to... You don't need canon to justify Tony leaving. You can use canon to justify Tony leaving. That certainly works too. But you don't need it. Tony could Rhoda just decide after a whole bunch of Ziva shit. I mean, like, just before Ziva is even a sign of the team, he's not mad, he's just done. Yeah. He could come out of that sewer and go, look, you know, I got chained up with a guy who had nearly been stung to death by bees. He didn't even want to try to help save himself. I had to take my belt off. I had to save this Marine. The rules are fake. I just, <laughs> I need more. I spent all day in a sewer. I don't want to do this anymore. I'd like I to get laid. I'd like some beach and some sun. I want to be mag. I want. I want a Hawaiian shirt, a tacky one, a really, really tacky one. And I want to be able to wear it every fucking day, and no one look at me funny. And I want a Ferrari. You know, I mean, that's just you can do you you. You can kind of do, you can do what you want. I mean, that's sort of the great thing about fan fiction is you can do what you want, but you know, do it with a reason. Do it with deliberation. Do it on purpose. 
Do you have any idea how many times I've talked to somebody about something that goes, I didn't mean to, with a story? I didn't mean to? No, 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 no. Do that shit on purpose. Do it, do it on purpose. You can't have the great thing. And that they, and I hear I don't mean to about the bad things in stories as much as I hear I don't mean to about the good things. And I find that weird. It's like, just own it all. You you do it on purpose. If it goes badly, fix it. If it's great, own it. Revel in it. Be excited about it. Have your mic drop moment. Drop that fountain pen. <laughs> Don't drop your Boom. keyboard. Just, you know, they're expensive. Or your laptop. <laughs> yes. Or your mouse. Sometimes shit happens. You know, you drop it and all the parts go in different directions. You never do find the batteries. You have to, find new bat- you have to get new batteries. I'm not speaking from experience or anything. No, it doesn't sound like experience at all. <laughs> I never did find that fucking battery. It just disappeared. <laughs> to find it someday, it will have leaked. Oh, God. I'll tell you a story, because we got 15 minutes left. I um, had a uh, very nice uh, headset, Plantonics, uh, for my phone. Um, it's about... 10 years ago, my my very first headset, I was really pleased with it, or my, whenever, it might not have been 10 years, whenever Bluetooth came out, and my, my I, I had a phone that had Bluetooth, and I got a headset, and I was really pleased with it, I was really happy to have it, and um, I'm going down the road, and because I had not dried my hair um, at home, and I was going to work, I rolled my window down to dry my hair on the way to work, because I had naturally curly hair, and I can do that kind of shit. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to get to work, spritz it a little bit, run some um, some serum through it, and I'm ready to go. You know, so I'm 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 trucking down the road. I got my headset in, and I'm listening to the radio. And I pull up to a stoplight, and I didn't realize it at the time, um, but a bee flew in my car. And I start going again, and all of a sudden this bee crosses my line of vision, and I flip the fuck out, right? going down the road. I managed to keep my car in my lane, okay? I didn't, like, hurt anybody. But I flipped my hand up, and I hit my headset. And for... I couldn't find it. It wasn't on the back seat. It wasn't on the floorboard. I thought, well, shit. I have knocked my headset out the fucking window, right? Oh, man. Two years ago... This is like, a, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was close to a decade. Two years ago, I'm still driving the same car. My husband says, would you like a new car? And I'm like, yeah, I'd like a new car. And he goes, well, go clean out your, go go, go clean that one out and um, we'll turn it in. And so I'm out there cleaning out my car. And I'm in the back seat. <laughs> And I have kind of laid down on the back seat to make sure I don't have any, like, a Coke can or something that's gone under the seat, you know, because I don't want people at the dealership to think I'm a a slob. Um, And I see something that doesn't quite look, I'll be damned if that wasn't my headset. My headset (laughs) spent a fucking decade under my driver's seat. It had hooked into the spring. So it wasn't like laying on the carpet. It was like in the spring of my seat. And because I was the only person that ever drove this car, the the seat had not been moved. If the seat had moved, it would have cracked the headset in two and it would have fallen to the... Uh, but it was in the fucking spring to, to move. It had been there for a decade. That's hysterical. 
So I bring it in, right? And I said, would you look at this shit? And he was like, where'd you get that? And he grabs it and he says, this is kind of almost antique, isn't it? <laughs> and I said, that's that headset I saw I knocked out the window. He said, babe, that was 10 years ago. I said, I know. <laughs> Side note, it still works. Yeah, it was dead for 10 years. You plugged it in. It still worked. That's awesome. Still worked. Plantonics. Can't buy anything better, I swear. Um, great headsets. I plugged it in, charged it, hooked it right up to my cell phone. Now my niece uses it on her cell on, um I gave her my old um, Galaxy phone for her to use for, uh, you know, apps and stuff. And... Um, it had it, it was still attached to that Bluetooth because uh, I'd been playing with it, and um, she asked for the Bluetooth, so I gave it to her. So now she has her little Bluetooth and her little um, phone that doesn't actually have a SIM card in it, um, and she and she and she listens to music on it. Nine years old, looking like she's thirty. <laughs> That's a tough headset. <laughs> It was under my fucking car seat. It wasn't even that dusty because I vacuumed my car pretty regularly. Um, I mean, it was just in the spring. It must have bounced. <sighs> Ten years. It was just waiting for you, just like that battery is somewhere waiting for you because the battery's probably yeah. in way worse condition. I'm sure. I'm sure. So I had um, I had made a post earlier this week because we, we were talking a little bit about alignment and this. I made a post earlier this week about how you can't. Um, it's really difficult to take a um, an observably good aligned character and make them a horror in a fanfic. And it, it that is also something that's just kind of like my final thought here is like a, 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 a another one of my major pet peeves is. A lot of characters you can slice and twist. You can turn them a few degrees and get something really different, um, accomplish your goals, whatever. But when they become unrecognizable, that's a big old fail of characterization. You can't make a character unrecognizable and call them the same character. Um, Then it's just an OC. And go make an OC. Do that. Go make an OC that looks like that. That look, that thing, that that unrecognizable thing. People are afraid to make an original character, so they take um, a character that's available in canon and twist and corrupt them to to their standard. Um, people ask me about the characterization of Sam Carter and Ties That Bind. There was no other character I really could have used in canon to to fit that, and she was actually really easy to twist into that person because she's not necessarily great on the ethics front anyway in canon. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't That's picture anybody... No, it, it, was, it was very easy. I couldn't picture anybody in canon in the Kevin Jordan role because I almost made it Mayborn. I thought, no, no. He's an asshole. He's not that, like that kind of asshole. <laughs> He's yeah. like that kind of asshole. I can't do that to him. Besides, he's off on some planet being king. <laughs> to bring him back. But so, you know, I had to make an OC because no other person really um, fit the 
the mark. Yeah, and I know, and we and we've talked before about how um, care fan, fandom has trained many of us not to make original characters that play a prominent role in a story, um, and you know, just ignore that. There's 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 many times you need to just ignore what fandom has told us to do, um, like not use he or excessively or a character's name excessively and use epithets or that repetition. You shouldn't use he said all the time. That he opined is a better thing to say because you know it really is repetitious. not. He opined is never a better solution than he said. He said fifty times <clears throat> in a row is better than he opined once. I'm just saying. Okay. And honestly, um, um, your goal as a writer is to make your work readable and approachable. And when you use language like opined, um, you are adding a layer of separation between you and your reader that you don't need. And you look pretentious. <laughs> you can look at you can <laughs> to be perfectly honest in dialogue. For a pretentious character, but to use it as a dialogue tag, yeah, to use it as a dialogue tag, it's just like what? And I mean, I'm re- I remember when like Phantom was going nuts though with trying to find different ways of saying said. It's like just I said. I mean, there are times. I mean, I'm all for some variations, whispered, murmured, screamed. You know, those are all fine because they're standard. But some 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 of the stuff people come up with in like, trying to be different and original was wackadoodle, and it just doesn't make any sense. So, and you know, it becomes a things, distraction, and it knocks your reader out of the story. Yes, it does. And you can't, you don't want to swing too far in any one direction because wild swings like that, especially in the basic structure of the story, is is distracting. That's what it is. It's super distracting. And you, if you want, if you're gonna have a wild something wildly strange happening, it needs to be in your in your plot or in your in the dialogue that's deliberate. Um, you don't want your story mechanics to be where you have the bizarre and crazy happening. Because that's just that's just that's just like what the fuck is this person doing? Um, but your character, it, when you're twisting a character, you're taking a character that is well known, beloved, maybe not beloved, and when you're twisting them to accomplish something. The, at the end, if they're not recognizable, you twisted too far, like you twisted its head off, and <laughs> you need to you need to get some super glue and put the Barbie back together because it doesn't we can't recognize it anymore. And if it's not recognizable, then it's not the same character, and then you, that's not that's not characterization. So playing with characterization is is turning, twisting, moving, manipulating with. Within enough degrees that it's still the, that you're right, that you've got something that is recognizable as um, it's like red velvet cake. What do you remember? Red velvet cake used to be chocolate cake. It was like a, a failed, failed, failed attempt at chocolate cake at some point. I don't remember what happened that made red velvet, red velvet cake, but that is a failure of chocolate cake. I mean, it's great as red velvet cake, but you can't call it chocolate cake. Not even you if you leave the red dye out. Right, you have to call it. You have to once you once you have made that red velvet cake, you have to call it chocolate. You have to call it red velvet because that's what it is. You can't call it chocolate cake anymore. It, it is no longer failed chocolate cake. 
So, you know, if if you are going to take Harry Potter and you are going to put him raised in America and you are going to give him a different name and you are going to give him blonde hair and blue eyes, you I mean, there comes a point and make him non-magical and have him, like, you know, running a coffee shop. There comes a point in these changes that you're making when you when you, when you, he is it's not chocolate cake anymore. It's red velvet. You know, it, it's just it's different. It's it's an original character, and you might as well just call it what it is. And if you don't have tea. enough dye, it's pink velvet. <laughs> That's true, pink velvet cake, which isn't quite as satisfying. It it feels like you're having some sort of love affair with Valentine's Day, and it's kind of creepy. Pro tip. If you don't have enough dyeing, you end up with pink, put some strawberries in it. <laughs> you can't go wrong. <laughs> there you go. You never go wrong with throwing some strawberries and things that are pink. Strawberries, chocolate cake, you just can't go wrong. There's a little cocoa powder in your cake, and you got strawberries. You do some cream cheese icing. No one's going to care that cake is pink. Yeah, like, but bending a character is fun. It is super fun. Somebody wrote a care a sh- um episode not episode a story where Tony's a serial killer. Um and it was awesome. It was still Tony, but it I was read like that deranged story. it was deranged crazy Tony who was like to- like Dexter kind of thing and didn't he and he and Dexter met. And it's like how do you like to kill people? Why do you to do it this way? Are you gonna take care of this body? No, this one's on me. I mean it was just it was awesome. And Gibbs has like been keeping him in check all these years, and Gibbs knows he's a killer. It's just killer. Then, it's just then, un- then Gibbs took his siesta. Yeah, and Gibbs <laughs> takes his. Gibbs goes on siesta, who's been keeping Tony in check, and Tony's like, "What am I going to do?" I mean, it, it. That is the most twisted I've seen Tony, and it was still Tony. But there, are, but can you go too far with turning a character? Yes, you can go too far to where it's no longer. Tony. So that's, I mean, that's a great example of someone turning a character about as far as you can turn them, and and you're going, you're sitting there going, yes, that is so weird and so wonderful at the same time. So when you're practicing your characterization, you know, just try to figure out where that line is, you know, where between... And that line is, is you need to figure out what parts of your character are fundamental to them. What makes Tony, Tony? And if you keep those elements, you can make him a serial killer. You can make him an MI5 agent. You can make him a detective in Hawaii who bones a really hot Navy SEAL. <laughs> you can do all these things if you keep your fundamentals. Keep your fundamentals. That is super important. We're down to a minute and 15 seconds. Um, what is the name of that fic where Tony's a serial killer? I do not remember. Um, let me see if I'm going to look. And it, I'm going to look. Stay in, even, if, even if the show ends, Kristen, stay in chat. Um, I'm going to find it because um, I'm pretty sure it's a crossover with Dexter and there can't be that many. We're down to 47 seconds. You guys have a great weekend, and we'll catch you later. Stay in the chat room for those of you who need the link. I'll put the link in the description box for those of you who are on the podcast. Bye. Say goodnight, Julie. Good night, everyone.